0: At the end of every harvest, the planter would call John Starling up to the big house. John would knock on the back door, the only door he was permitted to enter, according to Southern protocol. And he and Mr. Richard would meet in the planter's kitchen. It was Florida in the 1920s. John Starling was a sharecropper, a black tenant farmer for a white boss. Come on in john mr richard
1: said come here boy have a seat he pulled out his books well john
0: boy we had a good year john yes sir mr richard i'm sure glad to hear that we broke even you don't owe me nothing and i don't owe you nothing John would have nothing to show for a year of toiling in the field, but this wasn't unusual. Mr. Richard, in fact, was considered a relatively good boss because he let his tenants break even. Most other sharecroppers ended each year deeper in debt than before, meaning they were bound to their bosses by debt almost as much as their grandparents had been bound to their masters by slavery. But of course, it was the bosses who kept the books and did the counting. One anthropologist who studied this system estimated that about a quarter to a third of bosses gave their sharecroppers an honest settlement, at least according to the meager wages that were considered honest. But a sharecropper didn't have much recourse from the numbers that their boss gave. After all, they had no access to the vote and no reason to believe that they would have the protection of law enforcement. But that didn't keep some of them from trying to get what they were due. The next year, John went back to the big house and got the same news from Mr. Richard. By God, John, we did it again.
1: We had another good year. We broke even. Mr. Richard said, John, I'm sure glad to hear that
0: because now I can take that extra bale of cotton that I hid behind the barn and get some money to buy clothes and shoes for my kids. The planter jumped up. Ah, hell, John, now you see, I gotta go over these books again. And somehow, when Richard checked the books that second time, he discovered that John owed him precisely
1: one additional bale of cotton. John's mother, Lena, was a sharecropper too.
0: And one year John's brother, who had been to some school, went with her, while Mr. Richard went over his books with her. And when they got through, John's brother spoke up. Mom, Mr. Richard's cheating you. He's not adding those figures right. The planter jumped up. Now you see there, Lena, I told you not to send that boy to school. Now he learned how to count and now he jumped up and
1: called my wife a liar, because it was my wife who did these books. And right then and there, Mr. Richard's men
0: came and pistol whipped John's brother. But they weren't finished. That night, 15 or 20 men came on horseback to their home, looking for John's brother, for calling a white woman a liar. But John's parents had known what to expect. John never said where his brother fled to.
1: All that was ever said was, they hid him out. He left from out of there. That's a story was
0: recorded by journalist Isabel Wilkerson in her book, The Warmth of Other Suns. She compiled interviews and many sources about the Jim Crow South and the great migration of black Americans out of it in the 20th century. And sometimes people have a hard time interpreting the parable that we heard today. A parable about a boss and about some debtors to that boss and about a manager who works for that boss and who swindles his boss by writing off the debts of the people that owe his boss money. And it can be hard to understand this parable. Sometimes it can be confusing why this conniving manager gets to be the hero of the parable, so that in a twist at the end, even the boss ends up praising him. And there's never just one way to read a parable. Parables aren't given to us to unlock and explain, but to sit with and to turn around and around, to inhabit and think about in different ways and to let ourselves be shaped by them. But it helps me to read this parable and to think about what it might've been like to be a tenant farmer back in the days of the Roman Empire. Maybe a Jewish farmer working land that belonged to a Roman or Greek boss and serving under
1: a Jewish manager in a system that might not have been so totally different from that sharecropping system.
0: It might not be so totally different from the way that many people experience working for bosses even today. In situations where the boss controls the time card, or the work schedule, or the final paycheck. In situations where there's no recourse and you get what you get. And I imagine Jesus's first hearers hearing this story and maybe responding not with righteous confusion about how a manager that wrote the wrong numbers could possibly be a hero, but i imagine them responding maybe the way that people used to respond to the robin hood stories in old england with delight and with a kind of pricking up their ears and knowing immediately who the hero was in this story the guy that robbed from the rich and gave to the poor the outlaw with a heart of gold who pulls it off with so much style and bravado But even in the end, the rich guy, he swindles,
1: has to grudgingly admire him for pulling it off. And I wonder what it means that Jesus tells us this story about a self-appointed debt forgiver, about a writer-offer as the hero of the story. It's said that Herod the Great, Herod the king, Herod
0: the oppressor of the people, used to like to hear John the Baptist preach. Herod who would eventually execute John the Baptist, Herod who would not listen to what John the Baptist had to say, still found something about John so compelling and even so delightful that he used to send for him to hear him speak.
1: What was it? about John's gospel that reached something in that mighty king? What was it about that manager's behavior that reached something in the heart of that boss? And I imagine this boss as a kind of Mr. Richard.
0: Maybe he's a man who thinks of himself as fair and even kind-hearted who bears no active ill will towards any of the people who work for him and who did not
1: create the system he inherited, but lives his life within it without questioning it. He's better than some bosses. And when he resorts to violence to preserve the hierarchy of things,
0: he does it perhaps with a kind of sad shrug, a note of regret, thinking how much it pains him to have to send his men as night terrorists to punish a black man for getting above his place. And into the settled life of Mr. Richard comes a manager who does something so outrageous that it shakes up the whole system. He writes off debts, which maybe in a good way, maybe is a good way of saying in a nutshell what God loves to do. After all, each week in the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to forgive us our trespasses in a word that really literally means forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. What would it look like if we were radical forgivers of all those who are in any kind of debt to us?
1: What would it look like if we saw that as what we are baptized into? a merry band of outlaws who go around setting others free. Well, the manager does some of Mr. Richard's forgiving for him without asking.
0: And maybe just for a moment that cracks something open in Mr. Richard. Maybe he can't find his way to actually changing his life, but he can find something to admire
1: in what the manager does. Maybe. Today, we are renewing our baptismal covenant. We are
0: doing it in solidarity with Esperanza, who is about to be washed in these life-giving waters. And we will say this covenant that commits us to seeking and serving Christ in all others, to
1: seeking justice and peace and to respecting the dignity of every human being. God has forgiven us all our debts.
0: In the name of the manager, Jesus Christ, may the renewal of our baptism into Jesus commit us again today to a radical path of forgiveness for ourselves, for each other, for all God's children.